0: The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hello, welcome to a special episode of the Capital Weekly Podcast. Today's episode was recorded live Thursday, March 3rd at California Crime, a conference examining criminal justice policy in California. The topic of today's panel was True Crime, The Statistics, moderated by journalist Sigrid Botham.
1: California Crime was presented as part of Capital Weekly's California Conference Series. Support for California Crime was provided by KP Public Affairs, the Western States Petroleum Association, Perry Communications, Capital Advocacy, Lucas Public Affairs, Pandora, and the California Professional Firefighters.
2: Thanks very much, Tim. Um, This is an important conference, uh, particularly the intersection of politics and and crime, and also media coverage. Um, It's good to see you all. If the panelists would all start their video, Um, I'd like to do a brief introduction and then introduce the panelists. uh, After which they will give a brief summary of their uh, organizations and highlights of their work. Um, At the end of the panel, as Tim mentioned, we'll have a Uh, time for questions from from the audience. Uh, Fluctuating crime statistics have always been fraught with controversy and are subject to wildly varying interpretations, which are often misleading, frequently misconstrued, and utilized for partisan purposes. Statistics are reported by local jurisdictions, then assembled by state and federal agencies, and data collection may vary I've covered the criminal justice system as a journalist for decades, as well as many interrelated issues, and was responsible for organizing statewide press conferences on the annual crime stats when I was press secretary to then state attorney general John K. Vandekamp. I organized similar press conferences on the equally controversial subject of student test scores in my previous role as press secretary to the then state superintendent of public instruction, Wilson Riles. I was struck then by the similarities between these two heavily covered news events and the fact that both are based on statistics gathered by local jurisdictions in school districts and from law enforcement. And as Tim mentioned, I always enjoyed working with statisticians, other expert staff in both agencies, and likely had much better access than when I was a reporter. We always had fascinating, sometimes behind-the-scenes discussions about what those statistics mean, how they are collected and interpreted. Subsequent discussions at this conference today will focus on solutions, suggested changes and how crime is addressed in California. This panel is intended to set the foundation for those discussions. And we're very honored to have this distinguished and highly knowledgeable group of panelists to help lead us through the thicket of complex statistics, their historical context and what they mean. There are more detailed biographies of our panelists in your online program on the Capitol Weekly website. I'd like to start by introducing each panelist, then asking them to give us a brief overview of their organization's highlights of their work. And again, there will be time for questions from the audience toward the end of the panel. Magnus Lofstrom specializes in criminal justice and public safety issues as policy director and senior fellow at the Public Policy Institute of California, and as a visiting professor at the Goldman School of Public Policy. Focusing on crime rates and recidivism, his recent work examines crime statistics and criminal justice reforms in California and many other related subjects. His research has been widely published. He received his PhD in economics from the University of California, San Diego. Allison Linetta is a manager in the Investigative Services Program in the Criminal Justice Statistics Center of the California Department of Justice, which collects and reports statistical data used to assess crime and the criminal justice process in California. The center maintains multiple statewide data systems containing specific criminal justice data, which is available through the Attorney General's Open Justice website. Jennifer C. Noble is an assistant professor in the Division of Criminal Justice at California State University, Sacramento. She is a former criminal defense attorney who practiced largely in federal court focusing on white collar cases such as mortgage fraud, tax evasion and tax fraud, healthcare fraud, and money laundering. She is the author of White Collar and Financial Crimes, a case book of scam artists, fraudsters, and corporate thieves published by the UC Press. She is also a journalist and former State Capital Bureau reporter for the Associated Press. And I remember Jennifer as a standout journalism student and state Hornet reporter at Sacramento State. when I first started teaching there in the late 1980s. She holds a BA in journalism and government from CSUS and a JD from the University of the Pacific McGeorge School of Law. Gregory Totten is the CEO of the California District Attorneys Association, a Sacramento-based professional association which, which helps train prosecutors. And works to influence government policy, offering seminars and providing publications, and as a forum for innovation in the criminal justice field. He is a longtime former prosecutor who was Ventura County District Attorney for nearly two decades, elected to five consecutive terms. His law degree is from Pepperdine Caruso School of Law. Now, if each of you could give us a brief intro uh, with highlights of your work and and the, the issues we'll be discussing here, and then we'll have a an open and I hope a good exchange of of ideas. Allison, would you like to unmute and and start the discussion?
3: I work for the California Department of Justice, which is housed under the Attorney General's Office for California, and I'm the program manager for the Criminal Justice Statistics Center. And we are the program that's responsible for all of the statistical reporting um, under the UCR blanket um, with the FBI. One of the things that we have been working tirelessly on is making sure that our data is clean and full, meaning we have representation across the state so that when we put our data out for the public and policy and researchers to use on our open justice website and in our publications, that it's accurate and it's reflective across the state um, for those users. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Allison. And Magnus, if you could uh, um, tell us a little bit about your background.
4: Hey, thanks, Sigrid. And and thank you all for for being here. And and I think it makes sense to kind of kick off these uh, discussions with um, a high level overview of crime changes over the last few years, and, and discuss possible contributing factors and then so with that in mind, um, broadly uh, violent crime is roughly where it was before the pandemic um, with a notable exception that, that homicides jumped by uh, about 30% in 2020. And based on some preliminary data limited to uh, some of the biggest cities in California, it, it does not appear to have returned to pre-pandemic levels in in, in 2021. And while most property crimes uh, dropped sharply in 2020, it appears to be on the uptick in 2021, uh, returning roughly to pre-pandemic levels. Um, But there is one exception there, and that's auto theft, uh, which rose about 18% in 2020. And that's a trend that does not appear to have reversed in, in 2021. And California's notable criminal justice reforms like realignment in 2011 and Prop uh, 47 in 2014 have been suggested to have contributed to increases in crime, um, both at the time of the implementations as as well as as now. Uh, But I think it's important to point out that no research to date has linked any of these reforms to um, changes in violent crime. Uh, but in our research, we, we we did find that they were contributing factors to coinciding increases in some property crime, and more specifically, auto theft went up as a result of realignment and larceny increased in the wake of Prop Forty Seven. And now, for Prop Forty Seven, was primarily driven by a very notable increase in car break-ins. Mm-hmm. And then, if we turn specifically to the crime changes over the last two years and then some of the other possible underlying factors. I think one key thing to recognize here is that it is really difficult to disentangle incredibly pin changes on any one factor. Um, COVID presented highly unusual times that upended our lives. We had shelter-in-place orders and various mandates and and this changed where we work, where we travel, it limited socializing. And with all that, we had fewer interactions uh, with people, and that very likely led to reductions in some crime. And then at the same time, we had uh, we have experienced severe and importantly disparate economic impacts, um, public health concerns, and efforts to prevent the spread of COVID uh, presented a number of challenges to our criminal justice system, uh, which led to. Uh, state and local directives and mandate that significantly affected policing, including arrests and bookings. Uh, It affected jails, uh, prisons, as well as courts. And then um, summer of 2020, we had civil unrest in the wake of uh, the murder of George Floyd and heightened concern about racial disparity in policing and criminal justice more broadly. There were uh, increases in gun sales and, and then as well, uh, possibly in drug uses as well. And, and these are just some example of possible contributors. But um, with so many factors and, and dramatic changes overlapping, I think it's very difficult to credibly attribute any specific one to the uh, to the recent increases in, in, in some some crime. And well, I think we should undoubtedly engage in efforts to better understand what is behind the increases in some violent crime. There is no other way to address it, but to kind of have a sense of what's driving it. It's worth pointing out that crime rates in California are really at low levels from a historic perspective. Violent crime is, is roughly where it was in 2010 before the state embarked on a number of criminal justice reforms, uh, all pretty much aimed at reducing our reliance on incarceration. Um, And property crime in 2020 uh, was at the lowest level since 1960, uh, which is really the beginning of consistent crime stats uh, recording. And then lastly, but importantly, it also appears that the increases in crime that we have experienced here in California are really not unique to our state, but they are part of a broader broader changes. Mm -hmm. Thank you.
2: Okay, thank you very much. And um, Jennifer
1: if you could unmute, unmute. Hi, good morning. Uh, thanks very much for the invitation to be here today. It's really nice to be on this panel. Um, so uh, as Sigurd mentioned, um, prior to coming to Sacramento State to teach in 2016, I was a defense attorney, uh, practicing largely in federal court and mostly focusing on white collar crime. And prior to that, I was a journalist. So my interest in research at Uh, the Division of Criminal Justice at Sac State, uh, focus on white-collar crime, but I'm also very interested in sentencing reforms on the federal level. I'm currently undertaking some research with a colleague that looks at uh, the interactive effect of race, ethnicity, and gender on white collar sentencing decisions, um, which we're just starting to tease out. And I really appreciate all the work that uh, these statisticians do on statistics, because this is the third time I've chosen a career on my mistaken assumption that there would be no math involved. That's why I was a journalism major in the first place. So I really appreciate the work you all do to make this information um, accessible to the rest of us. You've
2: also done some writing on um, media coverage of crime, which we will touch on as well during. I,
1: I have. That's a that's an area that I'm very interested in, obviously, with my background.
0: Gregory, thank you, uh, Sigurd. I'm delighted to be here with uh, these distinguished panelists, and thank Capital Weekly for hosting this event. I've been a prosecutor, if it's hard to believe, and and I went to law school in part because math wasn't my best subject, but. Uh, um I've been a prosecutor for nearly 40 years and uh in my current role uh I'm, I'm pleased to be representing California most of California's elected district attorneys and about 3500 prosecutors statewide at the association um we you know, we focus on education we provide training programs publications for prosecutors we also uh, engage regularly in the public policy debate and have a, a registered lobbyist that uh, appears regularly at committee testifying our, on our issues. And I, I will just say uh, the, the issue of crime statistics is, uh, I think, as, uh, as Magnus has pointed out so eloquently, it is a complex issue. With a myriad of factors influencing it. I will tell you from a prosecutor's perspective and, and dealing with prosecutors who are regularly working in the courtrooms and seeing what's going on in their community, we do have grave concerns uh, about the impact of many of the uh, so-called criminal justice reform measures and, and their impact specifically on our ability to timely prosecute cases to have closure in those cases for our victims, and to incapacitate the most dangerous predators uh, in California from being able to continue to commit crimes. And and we think a lot of the reforms, though well-intentioned, uh, have had negative consequences on our ability to perform that function. So we're, as I say, we're delighted to participate in this. Uh, we, we may be an outlier in terms of some of your other uh, Uh, commentators, but uh, we're pleased to be here.
2: Thanks very much. Um, I'd like to start with an overview, and you've already, Allison and Magnus, you've touched on this, of recent California crime statistics reported by the State Department of Justice and their historical context and how those statistics compare to national trends. Since statistics are provided by local jurisdictions, do data collection methods differ Among jurisdictions, are there any statewide standards or national standards and how accurate, I mean, I I know this is a difficult question to answer, uh, how accurate and up-to-date are are the statistics? Allison, can you comment on on that?
3: Absolutely. The majority of the statistics used for crime evaluation um, fall under the FBI's Uniform Crime Reporting format which all states use to report to the to the FBI. So each each agency within California may have their own policies and procedures for collecting data at the local level based on how their record management system works, how that interacts with with their dispatch and their jail management system. So At the local level, there may be a a wide range of differences in how that's collected or how it's populated um, in their own systems. However, when it comes to the state and when when it comes to other states as well, and when it goes up to the FBI, it's all standardized. Everybody's using the same definitions. So for example, Agency A, an, an additional set of data, but all of that information that, it, that is, is definitionally defined by the FBI is what is reported to us. So you can make those connections and you can you can compare that data across states and and across the nation um, and, and really use data knowing that that everybody's reporting under the same definitions of of those crime types now where where there may be gaps um, we know is we're reliant on law enforcement to report that data to us and we do everything in our power to make sure that the the data that is is reported to us is clean and is whole and meets the definitional standards set set in place by the uniform crime reporting standards law enforcement is required on the uh, is dependent whole on on the public reporting those crimes to them. So there are definitely going to be gaps from what's happening out in the public, which is something, you know, the media may pick up on more, more, you know, crime victims aren't always willing to report those crimes, but people hear things that media picks up on those things. So there are gaps in, in what is happening in, in, in our communities versus what law enforcement is, is getting versus what the state is actually Having in the repository to provide out to everybody.
2: Magnus, do you have anything? Do you have anything to add to that?
3: I think that's
4: that's a really yeah, good summary of, of 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 the issue. I, I do think, especially the um, the issue and the concern about um, individuals, businesses, organizations reporting crime is something that uh, can vary. Um, you know, depending on what the uh, what the uh, crime climate looks like, but also what is being reported in media. So it's if if a particular issue is getting uh, attention in media, it's possible that it's also uh, you're seeing more uh, more crimes, that type of crime being reported. Um, But it's also possible that as we're seeing big increases in crime and especially maybe in some property crime at times um, that individuals feel like this is just so prevalent that they may not Reported com- completely as well, and and this issue of, of reporting is is something that um, is is important for us to keep in mind as we're looking at the numbers. Keeping in mind that it is uh, we're dealing in some instances with with underreporting, um, that is definitely a concern, But the uh, crime st- statistics that we are using and that we uh, rely on to a large extent for these kind of discussions. What they appear to do, uh, though, is able to capture swings in, in crime as well. What the magnitudes are is is, is up to uh, up for debate, uh, but they seem to be able to capture the swings. We saw it. We have seen it recently. If we look at the last couple of years and larceny, for example, very notable drops in larceny in, the, in 2020. Uh, but in last year, uh, those same crime uh, stats uh, picked up on on the notable increases as well. They return us to the pre-pandemic levels, but the levels themselves uh, represent no likelihood in underreporting. But uh, the statistics appear to be able to capture uh, changes in those trends.
2: And I want everyone to feel free to interject here if you have any follow-up. You know, I want this to be a free exchange of information, Jennifer. The the issue of media coverage comes up frequently. Uh, you have any thoughts on, you know, you know,
1: if it bleeds, it leads. That's the old. Yeah, I, before I before I go there, I just want to follow up on something that both uh, Magnus and Allison just mentioned about that underreporting, because um, in the area that I study, you know, includes fraud, and that is an area where we do see a lack of, um, you know, victims coming forward. There's a lot of shame associated with being a victim of a financial fraud. And so, like embezzlement cases, a business may not want to admit that, that a trusted bookkeeper um, took millions of dollars from them, especially if they're in a position of trust, where they have, they're entrusted with client funds. Um, Or you might also see that people who are victims of financial scams who are embarrassed that they fell for it, blame themselves. And if they do report it, it might be to their bank, but not necessarily to the police. So there's a large section of crime that we're very much at risk at that we don't, that's sort of under the surface. We don't really see it. potentially larger than our risk for, you know, of, of being a victim of a violent crime. So um, that is just something I want to mention since we were talking about underreporting of crime statistics. Um, but to talk about the media coverage, I'm really loath to criticize um, reporters. I'm a former reporter and I understand how um, the pressures that are on newsrooms and have been um, I got out of reporting in 2006, and it was right before news organizations began putting reporters' emails on every story that went out. Um, My hate mail was literally mailed to me. Um, So I feel very fortunate not to be getting that sort of um, abuse um, that comes with reporting now and also the strain that comes with um, newsrooms being skeletons of what they used to be. And, um, you know, I know reporters are being asked to do more with less, which always results in doing less with less. And, um, you know, I do understand those pressures. So I I hate to criticize. (laughs) I'm going to criticize. I (laughs) uh, I mean, the
2: deep dive reporting, long form reporting, whatever we want to call it, you know, they don't really have the time to do that. You're seeing some. Improvements in in terms of nonprofit journalism, like Capital Weekly, there are many others, and and that's very hopeful to me. Um, but you, you I'm always I read these crime stories, and then I want to say, okay, well, what's going on behind the scenes here? What what does this really mean? And talk to the people. Um, involved. But Gregory, do you have any thoughts in this area? As yeah, I'd like to add on the
0: media, having dealt with the media throughout the majority of my career, I, I have to say that I would be very reluctant to criticize them because, uh, you know, the typical courthouse reporter is covering numerous stories. They encounter DAs like me and trial prosecutors who are subject to all kinds of ethical restrictions on what we can and cannot say to the media. So getting the information in and of itself is difficult. The pace of the story coverage is critical. They, they want to break the story as soon as they can. And so uh, sometimes they make mistakes that are, that are understandable and human errors. And I've always had good experiences uh, with media correcting the stories I think they, as I say, they experience frustration with lawyers uh, on a case, both defense and prosecution, getting the information they want because we have to be so cautious. But I, I, I would not uh, criticize the media on the coverage of, of crime. I do want to just echo some of the things that have been said about underreporting. I think as it relates to theft in particular and perhaps most specifically to retail theft. Uh, we we believe very strongly that there's tremendous underreporting of retail theft. I mean, if, if all of us pay attention to what we see with our eyes on the nightly news, what we see in newspaper, and the photos of smash and grabs, the fo- the video of people you know riding a bicycle into a store and loading up a a, a trash bag and riding unabated out of the store uh, with property. A lot of businesses, and we are told by a former executive from a Fortune 100 retailer, uh, that to his best estimate, only about 20 to 25% of retail theft is being reported prop, post Prop 47. And the simple reason for that is from a retailer's perspective, they're deeply concerned about risk management issues. They're deeply concerned about protecting their brands and not scaring the public. Uh, but they've got employees they want to keep safe. Uh, they've got concerns about possible lawsuits because most of these cases do not result in criminal prosecutions, again, in part, because of the law and the limitations of the law. So from a businessman's uh, business person's perspective, there's huge risk in reporting. And we, we believe there's tremendous underreporting of retail theft. Yeah.
2: Um, if we <clears throat>
0: Focus on that aspect. Um,
2: as Capital Weekly pointed out in the introduction to this panel, while high profile smash and grab robberies made headlines, some politicians blame Prop 47 for creating a perception that these crimes have no consequences. Uh, proper, but property crime rates were at historic lows in 2020 down 30% since 2000, robberies decreased by 14% and rapes decreased by 8%. What do those statistics mean? How can we put them in context here? Uh, Magnus, you want to
4: start with that? Sure. And, and I kind of alluded to this uh, before in my opening remarks. and And that is that uh, there is a, a considerable research body now on the impacts of prop 47 on crime and and so far I there, there's none that is linking prop 47 to to any increases in in, in violent crime. Um, as I said, we did find evidence that in the wake of prop 47 that larcenies went up and um, as I mentioned that was particularly, driven by an increase in car break-ins. Um, but kind of coming back to uh, to Greg's point here about shoplifting, retail theft. Uh, one of the things that we did observe in the data was in the immediate wake of Prop 47, um, shoplifting went up very notably. We We saw that in that first year of Prop 47, we saw an increase. In, in shoplifting. So the crime statistics were able to pick up on that and suggested that there was some impact on uh, Prop 47 on shoplifting. But importantly, what we saw then in 2016 and subsequent years was that shoplifting, the reported number of shoplifting incidents came back down to the levels that we had uh, before Prop 47. Uh, whether this is really representing then a the decrease from 2015, or a combination of a real decrease or, or, or a decrease in, in reporting is, is, is impossible to to really say um, you know unfortunately the uh, we haven't seen the retail industry provide uh, you know data and statistics that allows for a comparison over time that would maybe give us a better insight to the possible impact on, on shoplifting but uh, like I said we did see an impact uh, from that perspective of an increase in 2015 it started pretty soon after Prop 47 was passed in November, Uh, but by 2016, it was back to where we were in 2014.
2: Greg, do you have any further
0: observations? Yeah, I think something we've long known in the criminal justice arena when it comes to victim behavior is that when victims feel that there is nothing positive that's going to come from their reporting a crime. We see this in domestic violence, we see it in sexual assault, we see it in property crimes uh, with the elderly, uh, with the frauds that Jennifer mentioned earlier. We also see it in uh, retail theft. If you're a business and you see a retail theft and and you have an employee that sees a retail theft and reports it that employee is going to be taken out of service for between three and four hours by the time law enforcement comes and responds if law enforcement comes and responds at all and uh, it's going to have an impact upon your ability to conduct your normal business and so many businesses we think are making financial decisions, economic decisions, risk management decisions, to avoid reporting it because it's just too costly for them because they know nothing's going to happen. And what used to be treated as a felony, where you've got a career criminal going into a store and preying upon that store, uh, where the individual is arrested and and brought to court on a charge, now is a simple ticket. It's, a, it's almost akin to a speeding ticket, even though it's not, it's not an infraction, it's a misdemeanor. And many of those people never show up in court. So I think this this issue of underreporting is a significant one. And it is one that is very difficult from a statistical standpoint to get our arms around. It's really hard to, to say what exactly it equates to. There,
2: there are recent polls. Uh, excuse me, go ahead. Did you have something to add, Greg? No, no. Um, as far as Prop 47 is concerned, um, I mean, there are some misconceptions, but there, and, and media coverage again factors into this. Uh, but uh, recent polls indicate that there's broad support uh, across the board, and it's not uh, on a partisan basis particularly, for changes in Prop 47. Um, can you speak to any specific changes that you think need to be made? Any of you have any,
0: any thoughts on that? Did you want me to speak to that? I'd be happy to. Um, yeah, I think what, what Prop 47 did is it took a whole class of crime, both drug crimes and property crimes that were historically could have felony consequences, and it converted them into misdemeanors. With regard to property crimes in particular, and I think that's dri- what's driving the LA Times poll that you referenced and public opinion in general and, and, and the concern in general. Uh, historically, if we had someone who uh, had been in and out of prison, had, had a prior record of, of criminal violence and, and steals from a store, that person uh, with qualifying priors could be charged as a felon. Uh, what Prop 47 did is all individuals now who commit that theft, unless it exceeds $950, which is rare, uh, are treated as misdemeanants, regardless of their background. And the, the net effect of that is that there's a perception, a pretty accurate perception by many members uh, of the criminal community, that there are no consequences for retail theft, so the problem is escalating.
2: Um, This would lead us to a discussion of the obvious related issue here, which is incarceration. Um, I mean, it's a statistical reality that California incarcerates far more people than other developed countries with a massive state correctional budget, high recidivism rates and limited rehabilitation or post-release services. Many critics point out that more public funds are spent on prisons and jails than on schools and far too little on prevention, early intervention, rehabilitation, or the root causes of crime such as poverty, homelessness, family dysfunction, domestic violence, untreated mental illness, racism. Poor people and people of color, mainly black men and boys are incarcerated at levels far disproportionate to their numbers in the population. How do you think these factors affect and define crime statistics in California? And how how can this be addressed? Magnus, you've done a lot of uh, research on, on prisons and prison populations and racial disparities and inequality. And perhaps Jennifer and Gregory and Allison, you have some other thoughts on that.
4: Yeah, no, uh, I think it's um, a few things here uh, on, on this topic. The first one is that um, the the U.S. Uh, nationwide has has a very high incarceration rate, uh, one of the highest in the world. That's absolutely true. Um, but California's incarceration rate is below the, the national average. I think that's well worth pointing out. And not only that, I think that we did. Um, we did certainly incarcerate to a very large extent to such great extent that we had severe prison overcrowding, Mm -hmm. uh, lawsuits, um, you know, federal courts intervening and, and telling the state that you have to reduce your overcrowding, your prison population due to overcrowding that, uh, prevented the state from providing adequate health and mental health care to its inmate population. That was really the, uh, what started the, uh, Uh, These reforms that we've seen in California with realignment. Mm -hmm. And um, if we look at from the peak of California's incarcerated population, both the jails and prisons, that was around 2007-2008 we had about a quarter of a million 250,000 people incarcerated in our jails and prisons with the reforms as well as covid covid has you know uh, also reduced our prison and our jail populations we're down to about 150,000 now that is a very dramatic decrease in our incarcerated population as i said partly of that part of that is is due to the reforms covid has also contributed um, But what we saw, realignment in particular, what we were looking at there was really uh, the possibility of uh, figuring out what is the incapacitation effect of incarceration. So keeping someone off the street, what kind of crimes are you preventing by doing that and to what extent are you doing that? And when we looked at realignment back in 2011, 2012... The only crime that incarceration seemed to prevent at that point at that level was was auto theft Um, and and about we estimated at that time that for for that marginal prisoner who who was no longer incarcerated as a result of realignment, you had an increase of about 1.2 auto thefts per year. You do a cost-benefit analysis of that, you realize that incarceration at those levels uh, really doesn't uh, give you a lot in terms of crime prevention. And we brought up the uh, this uh, clear indication that we should look for alternatives. Um, we brought up the uh, policing being one of those, uh, that policing is certainly increased policing levels is something that uh, the research body consistently finds reduces crime, but there are obviously other alternatives as well. And we have pursued some of those here in, in California. Um, we did, we have also looked at the possibility that the reforms has reduced racial disparity, one of the big problems within our criminal justice system. And we definitely found that uh, in, both in terms of arrest and bookings that Prop 47 le- led to decreases in racial disparity in arrest and bookings. And more broadly, if we looked over that period, ten year a 10-year period of, of uh, reforms, we also found that it notably decreased racial disparity, especially differences between uh, Black and white individuals in California in terms of incarceration. So we've seen impacts there as well.
2: Any
1: other thoughts in this area before we move on to... Well, the one thing I would like to talk about just briefly um, is is misdemeanor. So there's not really good statistics on how many misdemeanor cases are filed nationwide, but it is roughly 13 million. Um, That is about 80% of our criminal dockets. Um, And shout out here to um, Harvard Professor Alexandra Natoppo, who does the research on this and does an excellent job. Um, but that's a huge part of the criminal justice system that largely goes unseen uh, by the public. We you know nobody's out covering misdemeanor courts um, for their newspaper. We you know there's not the staff to do that, and there's not the interest in it. But those are not consequence free. Um, uh, charges, criminal charges. They can have long-ranging effects on people um, even though they're not felonies. And they can be really serious crimes like domestic violence and drunk driving, but they can also be things like loitering and jaywalking. And there's just this huge number of people who are in that criminal justice system who have effects that last decades, um, fines that they cannot pay off, loss of you know, jobs, housing, government aid, um, that there is a deterrent value to those misdemeanors, but there's also a punishment value to them that we really don't recognize. And that is something I would really love to see um, additional coverage of. Um, And I would love to see some additional coverage of the, um, you know, decrease in racial disparity that Magnus just talked about. I was not aware of that. And that is fascinating. And I would love to know more about that.
2: The issue of misdemeanors—whether to charge as a misdemeanor or a felony—I um, mean, many misdemeanors, people who can't afford bail, being in jail. Uh, you want to speak a little bit more to the no-bail issues? I know that's been a big, big issue, and 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 maybe contributing to some of the statistics, Gregory or Allison.
0: Do you have thoughts on that? Well, as as to the bail issue, I mean, speaking from my experience in Ventura County, when I was a young prosecutor, it was not uncommon for misdemeanants to serve lengthy jail sentences to stack up multiple cases that would be um, sentenced on a consecutive basis. Today that that process, that practice is largely over. Most of your defendants, at least most of the defendants we had that were in custody were pending felony charges and some had were sentenced inmates. Realignment took another whole class of offenders that would have historically gone to state prison that are felons and required them to be sentenced to local jails as a, as a prison sentence rather than go to a state institution. Um, just to, Add a little measure. Misdemeanors definitely have consequences and I would never want to discount that. But again, getting back to Prop 47 and the issue of retail theft, um, you know, the promise of Prop 47 was treatment, not jail. The promise was we're going to get these people into treatment. And I think, you know, from a prosecutor's perspective, we don't want to incarcerate. Uh, people that have mental health, substance abuse issues, things of that sort. We want them to get help. We think it serves the community overall safety and the best interest of the community to do that. But what Prop 47 did is it changed the traditional carrot and stick approach we had for retail theft, where you have a potential felony case hanging over someone's head, motivating them to go into treatment. With Prop 47 now, where they get a ticket, many never show up for the court, and for those that do, even when they're invited into treatment, uh, resist it because the consequences for the misdemeanor case are generally a night or two at most in jail, and there's no supervision. Why would they ever want to enroll in a... Drug treatment program, an 18-month drug treatment program, when they can be back out on the streets within a day or two. And so, what we have seen, what our colleagues are reporting to us, is there's as much of an as an 80% decline in drug treatment enrollment, drug court enrollment, and other diversion types of programs for substance abusers, for people with mental health issues, because there's no consequences. So. Uh, it's axiomatic that to motivate somebody into treatment, you need to have both a carrot and stick approach. And Prop 47, while it may have done many good things, uh, it, it removed that stick. And there are people, it, it borders on the inhumane, with people that are increasingly homeless, cycling in and out of the system with no treatment. And uh, we need to fix that.
2: Yeah, that's, you know, jails and prisons are often called the new asylums because of the Lannerman petra well, Lanterman-Petra Short, 50-some years ago, created the system of, uh, you know, 5150s and mental health holds, and it was a reaction to conditions in this, terrible conditions in the state hospitals where people had no rights, and, and often, were there, kept there for long periods of time. So the situation now, and this is an issue I've covered for decades, starting at the Sacramento Bee when I covered conditions in the state hospitals, but now we have the straight line result on the streets with police essentially being frontline responders. There will be other panels subsequent to this one dealing with solutions and with, um, re, you know, changing the way law enforcement responds to mental health calls. But um, how, ca- how can the, cr- the criminal justice system respond currently? We have a lot of people who are in jail awaiting mental health uh, evaluations um, who you know, haven't been convicted, haven't even been tried, because there's a huge backlog. Uh, and then there are, you mentioned some of the diversion programs. Uh, and people being reluctant to go into those i mean i know the solutions here are intractable and that the subsequent panels will be dealing with that but on a statistical basis a very large percentage as you mentioned greg are people who are mentally ill with mm-hmm. substance abuse issues they're going if they're released they're going to be back on the streets they're going to be back into emergency rooms you know do the systems need to be more coordinated and that's a long-winded response. I'd, I'd like to have a general discussion on that. If anyone would like to start
4: it, yeah, I'm kind of building on what you were saying, Sigurd, as well as what Greg was was talking about. You know, the intentions of Prop Forty-Seven, uh, shifting us towards more more treatment and programming, um, and I think that that's where there's real room for improvement. And then that is the evaluation of what has been done at the local level. To, uh to try to identify what what has worked and what what hasn't worked I don't think we're in a place where we can speak on on a broad sense of what those impacts are and that's that's kind of like there there's a real opportunity for us there to actually dig deeper and try to assess that better to see to what extent there's there's led to improvement and, and where it hasn't led to improvements so I think that's that's certainly uh an an, an area and an of Room for improvement, as I said, but also an opportunity. But I also think it's interesting when we talk about Prop 47 and and retail theft, uh, you know, all the issues we brought up, many issues, including the reporting part. But I also think it's when we look at what is um, driving our discussions around this right now, the, uh, the headliners are about smash and grab. And I think you know it raises that possibility. If well, are they really? These are not necessarily, depending on the circumstances, shoplifting incidents. They can be charged quite differently, depending again on their circumstances. Uh, anywhere from from robbery to uh, organized retail theft to uh, commercial uh, commercial burglary, all carrying that possibility of charging them as as a felony as well, and and moves it out of that. Uh, space of talking about Prop 47. So I think that's kind of interesting. Those are the ones that are driving our discussions. They are to a large extent, seemingly not shoplifting incidents, at least uh, the ones that I've read about.
2: Any other thoughts here? Um,
4: Well,
0: uh, Magnus is right on that. The crimes that we're seeing often rise to the level uh, of more serious offenses if you can apprehend the individuals we can potentially charge them with more serious offenses than retail theft getting back to the mental health issue it's you know again from a criminal justice standpoint we're trying to deal with it i mean most many law enforcement agencies now have crisis intervention teams and they have all of their peace officers trained in crisis intervention techniques rather than the traditional take control mindset of a peace officer, they need to slow things down. And so those those kinds of trainings are having a positive impact on the street and reducing the incidence of, sh- of shooting of mentally ill, which is a very good thing. In the court system itself, many of our jails now are uh, operating mental health wings with uh, trained experts to assist those people, make sure they get their appropriate medications, and where possible get them into mental health beds rather than traditional jail beds. Uh, That's a significant issue that we've got at the local level is not having enough bed space, not having enough mental health bed space. I would say that is, from my perspective, perhaps uh, more of a significant issue than the grave disability definition and concerns that that's too rigorous. And then another thing we're doing in the criminal justice system is, is mental health courts. You know, we we see cases, a common type of case involving somebody who's mentally ill may be a threat, uh, you know, very seemingly very serious threat. Uh, but how the criminal justice system deals with that if the person is mentally ill is altogether and must be altogether different than, say, how it would deal with a husband who makes a very serious threat and is stalking uh, his spouse. We have to recognize, we have to delineate those cases and deal with them differently. So mental health courts are equipped with experts. They're equipped with programs that we can put those people into that don't involve the traditional criminal justice incarceration responses. Right. And you know that's that is a uh, I think an area that holds great promise for the future. There also is Laura's Law on the civil
2: side, which is now more widely adopted in, in California since the law was strengthened. It's been around for 20 years, but um, that's on the civil side to before someone is is a, is arrested, trying to get them into treatment and and supervised by a civil court. Civil court judge. One of the areas here in Allison, if you could comment on this, or if you have statistics on this, is the lack of data on the number of people who are mentally ill who are going to prisons and and jails, and also you know follow up uh, statistics. Is that anything that the um,
3: Department of Justice is able to track or or follow? It's really not. Um... We do get some reporting from state hospitals of crimes reported within state hospitals, but not anything in terms of population uh, management, who's coming in, who's going out and the volumes that they're seeing um, based on you know what's happening in, in the population. Um, well I think probably uh, the Department of Corrections or state hospitals would probably have those statistics available, um, but that's not something that the department tracks.
2: Right. Um,
3: well, one of the big issues
2: in mental health reporting that, that I've reported on is is the lack, lack of data, the lack of coordination among agencies. I mean, the state hospitals now incarcerate primarily people who have been um, determined as criminally insane by the courts, but they're also tasked with uh, doing evaluations of people who have been charged with crimes who are staying in jail, but that, you know, that's an issue that perhaps can be dealt with in subsequent panels. Let's turn back to some of the numbers here. Uh, domestic violence was a, a big issue in the uh, crime reports. Uh, one statistics that jumped out at me that was highlighted in the Attorney General's press release was a 42% increase from 2019 to 2020 in, quote, domestic violence-related calls for, insistence in, for assistance involving a firearm. Um, of course, this is exacerbated. Domestic violence cases are exacerbated by the pandemic isolation as are mental health issues. And, the, and those are only the cases, again, that are reported. There's huge underreporting in, in domestic violence cases as in, in rape cases. And all of us are very familiar with the case in Sacramento currently of the man who killed his three uh, children and then himself. Uh, in a supervised visit um, as a result of a, you know, he, he was facing a restraining order, but he was still able to get a gun. And, and it was an assault rifle, uh, illegal, illegal weapon. Um, can we have any a conversation here on the domestic violence statistics and the role of the courts Particularly in terms of restraining orders um, in um, addressing addressing this issue. I mean, it's a statistical issue, but it's you know very much a human issue. Anyone want to start on that one? It's a these are all difficult difficult questions.
4: Magnus, um, it, it, it's a. Truly important issue, and and uh, some of the uh, the numbers that we're hearing are are, are very much troubling. Um, we have not really uh, examined uh, domestic violence uh, situations very closely at PPIC. Uh, we had discussions about doing that, especially as the pandemic started, recognizing uh, the uh, the challenges that. Uh, individuals, families were facing with things like shelter in place and all the uncertainty and the turmoil that we were all experiencing, but ultimately um, did not pursue that. And it, it came back to this concern about reporting uh, and the, uh, the serious underreporting that is likely to be the case for domestic violence. And our concern was that we might actually be dealing with a situation where the underreporting increased as a result of the pandemic. Uh, thinking about the, you know, uh, especially the shelter-in-place order and the kind of environment that you're in there, that you are now in a place with your, with your spouse that might actually present the real problem to reach out and and uh, report the uh, the situation as it's happening. So it isn't something that we um, we have yet studied very closely at all, unfortunately.
0: The
2: uh... Man who killed his children and then himself, and also killed a, uh, a chaperone uh, who was supervising the or you know present for the the uh, court ordered vi- visitation with the children, uh, did not have a previous criminal record until about five days before the uh, the murders, when he was arrested in Merced County for I think it was a, a DUI, assaulting a police officer, resisting arrest, was released. The following day, he made bail, apparently. Um, And there was, you know, the lack of follow-up on whether or not a person under a restraining order has a gun uh, is is very complicated. But also, Gregory, if you could comment a little bit about uh, how that might have been prevented had he been, had the agencies been, perhaps communicating better, you know, restraining, if Merced County had known about the restraining order?
0: Yeah, uh, County I think had we're, st- we're still learning the details of, of exactly what did and did not occur, but from my limited knowledge of the case, and I'm like you, I, I only know what I've read in the newspaper and seen on TV, but from my limited knowledge of the case, it kind of Presents a classic uh, intimate violence, intimate partner violence scenario in that it's escalating, his conduct's escalating. He's obviously got anger management issues. And we try to get restraining orders, we get emergency protective orders. We actually, you know, many DA's offices have clinics for the victims so that we can walk them through the process of getting uh, restraining orders, we even have 911, you know, cell phones that we give them so that they can call on a moment's notice if they're at risk. With the pandemic, uh, as um, Magnus pointed out, um, many of those problems in the home were exacerbated if they were having financial difficulties. it's exacerbated when everybody's in the home and the stress of having everybody in the home contributed to uh, what we think is a significant increase in domestic violence. But if you've got someone who is determined to stalk and do physical harm to um, his intimate partner, about the only way uh, of preventing that short of, you know, a 24-hour surveillance is to have them in custody. What the, uh, you know, what was known about him at the time of the arrest in Merced, we're still learning, I you know, it's, it's not uncommon to have somebody be released under the circumstances uh, of that offense, even though they've got a restraining order uh, in those situations. But I think it speaks to a much more significant issue and that is that the epidemic and it is an epidemic of domestic violence has a profound impact upon us from a societal standpoint and from a criminal justice standpoint if if a person grows up in a home where he is exposed to violence he is exposed to domestic violence 76% 76% of those people will become abusers themselves. Individuals who grow up in violent homes uh, are much more likely to become substance abusers. They're much more likely to commit crimes as juveniles. They're much more likely to engage uh, in dangerous and reckless behavior that increases uh, health risk and a myriad of other things. A study was done by uh, Kaiser Permanente back in the 1990s that involved 17,000 people. It was a longitudinal study, and the the results of that study is is called the adverse childhood experiences. Right. And children who have a score at a certain level on that analysis are at much greater risk. And from a criminal justice standpoint, if we want to impact crime we need to start in the home. We need to impact those families to reduce the incidence of violence in the home. I think that frankly is the area that holds the greatest promise for reducing crime overall.
2: Right, thank you. We have, we have a few questions here. Uh, one of the questions, is there, is there data, and Allison, if you have a response to this, is there data about the impact of the opioid and meth crisis on criminal activity? That's a pretty
3: broad question. Is there anything in the statistics on that, Alison? We don't have anything specific to that um, due to the way statutes are written and the way crime is reported under those directions I previously mentioned. We don't have um, specifics on how opioid and reported to us. However, um, there may be others on the panel who have done studies or are aware of studies on, on how that has impacted activity. Any of you have thoughts on that?
4: No, I, I, I don't know. I think it's one of the challenges is um, data on on uh, drug use uh, in general, that's, that's very challenging. And, and that's really what you need in order to assess then if it has any impact on criminal activity. Uh, so it's, it's, it's challenging. It is uh, likely uh, there is an increase in drug use. There is little doubt about it. There being a, uh, uh, a big problem in, in our society as well. So uh, it, and it is very likely that it's going to have some uh, impacts uh, on, on crime as well. So this is this is not a very well understood issue, but it certainly deserves um, more attention.
1: And I'd just like to add, I completely agree that we need to be studying this. And I think one way that we might want to do that is to look at the treatment that people who are incarcerated are getting. It does feel when you're a defense attorney that that is often a myth that your client is going to actually get treatment because it can be really hard to get into those programs because they are limited Um, and people get pulled out of them for behavior problems or for other issues just because of what their condition or what their conviction was. So, um, but maybe expanding those and then being able we would be able to know who's being treated for what.
2: We also have a question here. California instituted determinate sentencing in 1976, I covered it, and three strikes in 1994, what is the data on the effects of these laws? Allison, is there any data that you can speak to or Gregory,
3: any, anyone? Those were important determinants. Any, of- yeah, um, I there isn't anything specific that I can speak to on this. On on three
0: strikes, there were a number of reports issued in the years following the implementation of three strikes that reported a marked decline in violent crime in the state of California and overall crime. I think violent crime went down somewhere in the neighborhood of 40%. Overall crime went down uh, 33%. Now, those reports linked those declines to the initiative, to the three strikes initiative, I think, Probably somebody of Magnus's uh, sophistication might question some of those linkages, but that's that's, that's what was uh, reported, and I can and I can tell you from a prosecutor's perspective, uh, we thought the we thought those laws helped us uh, with career criminals, with people who really presented a danger. Were there abuses with the way those laws were implemented in some jurisdictions? That were too heavy-handed. Yes, there were there were a number of examples that I think we can all that come to mind. But I think largely uh, they have had uh, you know the, they have given us the ability to take the most dangerous prolific offenders uh, out of society. And there are individuals, there are predators out there that should not be in our communities. And three strikes enabled us to, to go after them. There's a lot of pressure now to change
2: three strikes. Mm-hmm. You know that it has disproportionately affected people of color, and that it's been utilized in a heavy-handed fashion. You know, having extremely long sentences when the final, the third strike, might be a, a fairly a more minor crime. Jennifer, as a criminal, former criminal defense attorney, how what is your view of three strikes?
1: Um, while I agree that when used against some of the worst of the worst, it can have that incapacitation effect and, and uh, prevent violent crime, um, these these aren't always limited to the worst of the worst. And um, when you have a broad statute that says, you know, three strikes and you're out, um, that doesn't necessarily catch, you know, only the upper tier of, of criminal behavior. Um, and it can sweep in a lot of other people. Um, so... It is a uh, you know thorny issue. It has to you know I think it's something that should be more nuanced. Um, yeah. As as
2: far as um, uh, well, there's one question here specifically to Gregory. Um, have pre-trial settlements in criminal cases increased or decreased as a result of the pandemic, or have they not been affected?
0: I I don't have statewide data, but I can tell you our experience in Ventura County is. They increased uh, with all of the courts coming out of the Supreme Court, the Chief Justice, to delay cases and uh, um, you know deal with the pandemic in a way that made people within the criminal just kept people safe within the criminal justice system from the spread of this virus. Um, Many cases, you know, there was there's been concerted efforts to resolve cases as soon as as practical and possible. I think one of the concerns we have going forward is the backlog of cases. Notwithstanding those efforts to resolve cases, uh, the backlog of those cases has grown exponentially, and there's going to come a point of reckoning where, when the courts truly open up fully and you know we're, we're going to have a backlog of trials that we're going to have to deal with and jurisdictions many jurisdictions are going to truly struggle with handling those cases within the statutory time frame required by law we have a question
2: here and we just have a f- couple minutes left um are covid population controls in county jails going to end i mean i don't know if any of you are familiar with that or uh You spoke to it briefly, Gregory. Um, I mean, people in jails and prisons, inmates have died. There's been some resistance among correctional officers, um, according to various news articles, to being vaccinated. Um, So are the COVID population controls in county jails likely to end with the winding down of the pandemic more to an endemic?
0: Any, Any thoughts on that? I'm not sure I'm qualified. I really need to talk to a sheriff or a CDCR official to know. I mean, I can tell you, again, in Ventura County, the uh, COVID practices were very robust and really designed towards keeping the inmate population as safe as possible.
2: Okay. Well, this is a thorny topic, as we said from the beginning. Um, I'd like, if there are any final... Brief thoughts on um, what statistics mean, what statistics we should be collecting and are not collecting, cooperation among agencies. Magnus, do you have any thoughts there?
4: I think there there is one topic that we haven't really touched upon. Uh, You know, we have mentioned the increase in homicides, it is very notable. What we observed in California was an increase of 500 homicides in 2020. And while the homicide rate is low, especially compared to the early 1990s, that one year jump is the biggest we have ever seen in California since we started to collect these kind of numbers in 1960. And what it points towards is that the people who died were were to the large, the vast majority were men of color and it was gun related as well. Um, That that's where we saw the biggest uptick. It was in gun related deaths that took place on our streets and in public spaces as well. So I think that is as we move forward, that is that's an issue here to to kind of better understand. It is the uh, the uh, top of my list of concerns that I have regarding crime in California is exactly this. There are some violent crime homicides. There's some increases in aggravated assaults, also gun related, that deserves our intention to better understand um, that having again, very disparate impacts it is on uh, communities of colors.
2: And this, case, this Sacramento case, I hate to keep going back to it, but it's a um, classic example of, of someone getting, getting a gun easily when there was a court order preventing him ostensibly from doing that. And uh, I, I, I don't, you know, clearly there need to be, that needs to be addressed, and it certainly needs to be studied. Any final thoughts, Jennifer?
1: Um, I will just say that I was very heartened to hear President Biden address in the State of the Union that he was going to be um, appointing somebody to um, be a special prosecutor or to, you know, focus on um, pandemic fraud and I think that's an area that California should be interested in um, and uh, with the unemployment uh, uh, fraud that happened in our system um, anytime you have a large pot of money there's going to be um, a lot of fraud going on so um, I will be watching that very carefully in the future and hoping that um, unlike uh, after uh, the you know, housing market crash, that the investigation isn't just going after the low-hanging hang, low fruit, but it's going to be targeting the people who organized uh, that fraud.
2: Well, we've covered a lot of ground here. I really appreciate all your time and your considerable expertise. And um, uh, I hope, you know, we'll discuss, be discussing some of the solutions as, as, the, as the conference uh, continues.
0: Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.